he even said last night that if he uh, wasn't a preacher or if he had the option, that he'd be a traveling evangelist, and I think he can sense that as well. Um, Pastor Jay, he looks a little bit different this morning. He's all dressed up because uh, he has duties back at church right after this. And so uh, after preaching, he's going to be on his way. So um, this is kind of a farewell message for him. Um, so let's give him a big round of applause as he comes up. something you guys but um, I've got to go preach at my church after. Um, just before we jump into today's passage and sermon I just uh, want to thank you guys, thank Pastor Young uh, for the privilege of being able to share God's word uh, with you all. It's been a blessing. Uh, the coffee and the tea has been a blessing as well, I'm not going to lie. Uh, it's been amazing. Um, I had a lot of conversations yesterday and the day before with a few people and I just want to share one other thing before we go into today's message. <clears throat> uh, I, I think for everyone, we, we go through seasons of brokenness in our life. Uh, I, I shared that I came from a very broken family, a very dysfunctional family. And I used to look at other families, and like my friends' families, and just the lives of my friends, uh, who seemed to be doing much better than me, came from very tight-knit families, even my wife. Like, I'm always fascinated when I see the relationship between her, her brother, and her parents. They're like this. Uh, whilst, you know, my family, we don't really talk to each other as much as we should. And I remember back then, I looked at that and I thought, that's what it's meant to look like. Why can't my family look like that? And I think that's something that our heart desires as people. Despite all our brokenness, there is something that desires restoration and perfection, which is actually the way the world was meant to be before sin came into the world. And I think that's something that's been planted in all of us. Uh, we desire restoration. We might not be able to acknowledge it, we might not be able to comprehend it, but there's something that desires order and perfection. Uh, how many of you guys want to see the sunset, uh, sunrise this morning? I heard some of you guys, yeah, some of you guys know. And when you go to see the sunrise, what do you do? You don't just look at it. These days people don't just look at it. They want to take like a gazillion photos, Instagram stories. And you try to look for that perfect photo, don't you? Like my wife hates that I take terrible photos. Um, she's still training me how to take better photos to make her legs look longer in each photo. <laughs> but even in taking a photo of nature, there's something in us that wants to take a photo that shows symmetry and order. And I remember when I was an atheist, I used to wonder, like, why do we desire that? And I think one of the reasons we desire it is because the universe isn't just a random event. It's not like the atheists believe that everything just happened by chance and we just everything is just a bunch of vibrating molecules and atoms. But God's created the universe with order and structure. God's created each one of us with a purpose and an identity that he desires us to understand and to embrace. Anyway, that was that what I said. It's got nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted to share that with you guys. Alright, um, today's passage, uh, it might feel a bit dry. Um, so if you have trouble staying awake, don't, don't be worried that you're offending me. Um, I'll just be a little bit offended. <laughs> but we're in Daniel chapter 3. Even the Bible reading is going to be pretty 
long and repetitive, but let's see how we go. Daniel chapter 3. <clears throat> uh, I'm just going to read quickly just because um, it is a very long passage and quite repetitive. Alright, so Daniel chapter 3, the word of God reads, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald proclaimed, loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zypher, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, I told you it's repetitive, horn, flute, zypher, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, People of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zypher, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down on worship will be thrown into the blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your God or worship the gold statue you have set up. Then, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zypher, lyre, I just said orchestra, but horn, flute, zypher, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we, do, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary and he commanded some of his best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then 
King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men down into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says offensive, anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. But there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Oh, a very long passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we, we, we thank you that despite how tired we are, uh, that we have gathered to worship your son on this Sabbath day. Uh, Lord, as we come to the end of this retreat and we look to this very long passage in Daniel 3, Help us to hear your voice. Not only to understand what this passage means, not only to understand why it was written many thousands of years ago, but to understand what it means for us today. We want to be shaped by your word. We want to be a people that sit under the authority of your word. And we want to hear your voice through your word. So Lord, may we encounter you through the Holy Scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, uh, if you've attended church for any length of time, uh, you, would have, you would have heard this story in Daniel's, this book of Daniel, brother. Uh, and to give you a bit of context, what's taking place in today's passage? Uh, it's said during a time when the people of Judah uh, were in exile, they were in captivity, um, and they were living under the rule of the Babylonian Empire, they were kind of like the superpower of the day. And throughout the Old Testament, you'll find, like all the way from Genesis, that God made a covenant with His people. He wanted His people to worship Him and Him alone. He didn't want them to fall Like despite all the other nations around them, God told them, I don't want you worshipping other gods, no engraven images, no idols. I am the one true God. That's what He desired of His people. Uh, but what you will read as you go through the books, like the historical narrative books in the Old Testament, is that God's people just do quite the opposite. Uh, kind of like the leprous man that did the exact opposite of what Jesus commanded him to not tell anyone. They did the exact opposite. God commanded them, don't worship any other gods. They said, no problem. And they went straight to embracing the gods of the nations around them. And they go down this downward spiral of disobedience. It's just like non-stop. They disobey, 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 repent. When a prophet comes, disobey, disobey. And that was kind of the pattern for Israel and Judah. And it's really the pattern for us, isn't it? But there came to a point in the Old Testament 
where God kind of said, you know what, that, that's it. And he gave them over to the hands of the enemy, Babylon. And Babylon comes and invades. And what they do is they don't like kill everyone, uh, but they find the smartest, most good-looking people of the land. And they take them back to the empire. Like, guys, like, maybe we went to like North City Boys. I don't know if anyone went to North City Boys. No? All right. But like the best-looking, smartest, like 200 IQ guys took them back to the empire. And this is where we're introduced to Daniel and his three friends. Their names, original names, were Dan Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But then as they're taken to Babylon, they're given new identities. They're given Babylonian names after Babylonian gods. And the new names for Daniel became Belteshazzar, and became Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, in the preceding chapter, in chapter 2, you'll see the famous story, uh, which if you went to primary school in church, you would have heard Daniel interprets, does the impossible task and interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He explains that the golden head of the statue uh, in his dreams represented you know, Babylon. The head represented Nebuchadnezzar because it was made of gold, whilst the remaining parts of the statues kind of represented the, king, uh, the kingdoms that would come after Babylon. And the dream itself was kind of like a prophetic dream pointing to what was going to happen in the future. But it was prophetic in the sense that it would prophesy about the coming of God's eternal kingdom, which would be fulfilled when Jesus appears in the New Testament. This is why when you read through the New Testament, whenever the gospel is preached, there's that catchphrase, repent for the kingdom of God is near. This idea of this kingdom that's coming, it, it, it's not something that began in the New Testament, but it finds its origins in the Old. Now, whilst King Nebuchadnezzar, if you read through to the end of chapter 2, Daniel interprets the dream, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar praises the God of the Jews, but he completely misses the point of this prophetic dream. And he goes on to make a statue entirely of gold. Now, again, if you see the Bible movies that used to be on TV, or if you see the Bible series, um, they usually show it as the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, a gold statue. Uh, but I just want to make it clear, the Bible doesn't actually tell us what this statue was. Um, it might have been King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, but I actually think it was probably a statue of a Babylonian god. Uh, unlike other empires like the Egyptian Empire, the Roman Empire that would come, the leader of these empires, they considered them, themselves to be gods. Like the Egyptian pharaoh considered himself to be a god. The Roman em, uh, emperor, that's why they called the Roman Empire Lord and Savior as well, because uh, they considered themselves to be on par with the gods. Uh, but the Babylonian kings didn't usually equate themselves to be gods. So I think it was a Babylonian god, a statue of God. Um, and according to verse 1, uh, it says that this statue was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits in length. Uh, so if we convert this to meters, the statue was 27 meters high and 2.7 meters wide. Uh, if it was a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, he must have been super, super, super tall and super, super skinny. Um, so I don't think it was Nebuchadnezzar. But according to verse 2, the king then orders all the leaders in his kingdom to congregate. And verses 4 to 7, he issues a decree. The decree was that the people of every nation and language that they commanded 
When they hear the sound of this orchestra, the, you know, the horn, flute, zypher, lyre, harp, drum, I'm just going to say it all the time, in uh, every kind of music, the moment they hear the orchestra start playing, the command is that they have to fall down and worship this statue. And if they don't worship, they're going to be thrown into a, a burning furnace. And so they play the music, and all the people fall down and worship. This was the command. This was the king's way of getting the kingdom to pledge their allegiance to the empire of Babylon and to himself. To fail in doing so, to not bow down or to even hesitate, would be considered an act of treason. It would be considered an insult to the king and it would result in a death sentence by being thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, by the end of chapter 2, we find that Daniel has these three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And because Daniel interpreted the dream in chapter 2 as a gift, Daniel asks the king if he can promote his three friends. Not just him, can you promote my three friends as well? What a, what a nice guy. Uh, got, got their friends' promotions at work. Um, but what Daniel did in chapter 2 when he interpreted the dream was that he did and accomplished what all the scholars in Babylon failed to do. All the political people, all the advisors, they failed to interpret the king's dream. But Daniel somehow managed to accomplish this. The king was disappointed in his political advisors, his scholars, his academics, but he loved Daniel. And this made the Chaldeans jealous. They were pretty upset that these foreigners came into their land and now had the king's favor. And so they start plotting Daniel's downfall and the downfall of his friends. Now, unlike the Babylonians, the Babylonians and pretty much every culture around at that time, they were what we call polytheists. They believed in many gods. But the Jews, as I'm sure you all know, and us, uh, we're what we call monotheists. We believe in one God, that there is only one true God and all other gods are no gods at all. They knew this. And so what they do is they, they, they devise a plan. They come to King Nebuchadnezzar and they bring to his attention, knowing that these four guys would never bow down and worship another god. They bring to Nebuchadnezzar's attention that these guys are disobeying. And they probably would have had to because it's just like an endless sea of people. The king at the front is not going to see four guys at the back. But he brings it to their attention. And so the king has Daniel's friends seized and brought before him. And the king said to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods and worship the gold statue I've set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound, it's going to say the orchestra, fall down and worship the statue I've made. If you don't worship, you'll be immediately thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who will rescue you from my power? So what he does is he re reiterates that decree. He gives that command again. And he threatens them with death if they fail to obey. He says, give me one more chance. He says, well, this is, I wouldn't do this for anyone else, but you're Daniel's friends. I'm going to give you one more chance. Bow down and worship. Otherwise, I'll kill you. And he ends with that rhetorical question. Who is the God that can save you from my power? And I say it's a rhetorical question because it was King Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying that his power and his authority exceeded the power of any god of any nation. He was saying to them, I don't care what god of god you worship, 
This God can't save you from my wrath and my power. But these three friends, they're defiant. And they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, they say to him, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God that we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the burning, blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, King. But even if he doesn't rescue us, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. They flat out refused King Nebuchadnezzar's second request, which was really out of mercy, to give them another chance. But their answer has two facets. Firstly, their conviction that they revealed to the king is that despite all of these threats, they're revealing to the king, no, you're wrong. Our God is capable of rescuing us from the burning furnace. He is capable. However, on the other hand, even if God allows us to die, we refuse to worship your God or your gods or this statue because worship is reserved for God or our God alone. What they reveal is that the defiant disobedience to Nebuchadnezzar And that their worship of their one true God isn't going to be shaped by their circumstances. They reveal to Nebuchadnezzar that they don't worship God because of what he can or can't do for them. But because of who he is. If I were to give an analogy, like, I don't, I don't think I, the senior pastor came to visit, but like, if I go back to my church today and I see my senior pastor, I'm going to bow to him. Because I'm Korean, and he's Korean. And it's just thinking, I'll get in trouble with my I'm like, what's up? Like, <laughs> but I'll bow to him. But I bow to him because who he is authoritatively in relation to me. I don't bow to him because he's nice and he's nice to me. But it's not just because it's nice to me. And it's the same way with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're declaring to Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to be shaken by any threat from any human power. Our allegiance is to God alone, not because of what He can or can't do for us, not in the hope that He'll rescue us, but because of who He is. He is the one true God of the universe, above every other God, every other politician, every other emperor that this world can produce. And Nebuchadnezzar, like I mentioned, he viewed the act of defiance as an act of treason. And he commands the furnace to be reheated seven times. Seven is the number of completion. That's kind of his way, but the author's way of saying it was just like extremely hot. He couldn't get any hotter than this. And he orders Daniel's friends to be bound and thrown into this fiery furnace. And the passage gives us an idea of how hot it was. Because the soldiers, these special elite soldiers that have been trained to be like the toughest men of the land, as they take these three, three friends up to the furnace, they die. They don't even make it to the furnace. They come within the vicinity of the furnace and the fire consumes them as the friends are thrown in. But then something amazing happens. 
according to verses 24 to 25. Because Nebuchadnezzar, it says, he jumped up in alarm and he said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, I see four men, not tired, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Not only were Daniel's three friends still alive, but Nebuchadnezzar saw that there was a fourth individual in the fire. And he recognized that this fourth guy wasn't like a normal guy. But the king describes this fourth man as someone that seems to have divine qualities in his appearance. And there's a lot of debate about who this fourth individual was. Some people think it was an angel of the Lord, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar concludes in this passage. I personally think it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But whoever you consider this fourth individual to be, it represents something. This fourth individual represents the presence of God with his people. And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire, verse 27 says, Then the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around. They saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. The only thing that had changed for these people <coughs> were that the ropes were burned away, and that was it. That in itself is crazy. And thank goodness, because it would have been embarrassing when the whole Babylonian Empire is there, and you come out of the fire because your clothes had all been burnt off, and you're standing there butt naked in front of like tens of thousands of people. But what's interesting at this point is that Nebuchadnezzar gives a response in verse 28. And it's a response that answers that same rhetorical Arabic question that he asked in verse 15. Because remember in verse 15, he said to the three friends, if they don't bow down and worship the statue, he asked them, who's the God that can rescue you from my power? He kind of insinuated, there is no other God that can be worshipped. There is no superpower, nothing supernatural that can save you because my power and my authority is above everything. Who can save you? What God has the ability to rescue you from someone like me? But having witnessed the miracle, ironically, Nebuchadnezzar answers his own question in verse 28, which reads, Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own God. And then the passage concludes with a new decree. Ordering for the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be honoured. Anyone that insults this God is going to have their limbs and arms and legs ripped off. And he gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego new promotions within the kingdom of Babylon. It's a long passage, but the exegesis isn't that long. Uh, and so having briefly explained the narrative of this passage, you have to ask that question again. So what? Uh, this is very difficult. Huh? So what? This is something that happened to the people of Judah, Daniel and his three friends, thousands and thousands of years ago. So what? What's that got to do with me? Uh, it has everything to do with us. And I want to share three observations 
why it's got everything to do with us. Because what we find through this passage is number one, suffering is an opportunity for us to reveal God to the world. As I'm sure you're all aware, and I said in my first sermon, suffering isn't something that's meant to be foreign to the Christian life. Again, we have to purge this romanticized idea that when we commit our life to God, that God's just going to make everything smooth sailing. But rather, suffering, we find, is an integral part of the Christian life. If Christ is a blueprint of the perfect man that we need to aspire to be like, and we do. We always say we want to be like Jesus. We find if we look to the life of Jesus, that suffering was just a huge, like probably a bit too much a part of his life. The Old Testament refers to him as the suffering servant. It's not a pleasant nickname to have. In seeking Christ and following after him, if we're going to be like him, then we have to understand that it means that we're going to have to participate in suffering, just like he did. And that's not easy. But what's the purpose of it? The scripture tells us a few reasons. It tells us that the purpose of suffering is to refine and strengthen our faith. But another reason that's revealed in today's passage is that suffering and persecution is one of the most powerful ways that we can reveal to the world the God that we worship. In today's passage, when Daniel's friends are threatened with a gruesome death, how do they respond? In verses 16 to 18, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, having heard his threat, they say to him, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the burning furnace. And he can rescue us from the power of you, king. But even if he doesn't rescue us, we want you to know as king that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the statue that you've set up. They respond to the threat of persecution, the suffering that is to come by pointing to their God. They tell the king, this isn't about whether we live or we die. It's not about what God can or can't do for us. It's not about what he will or won't do for us. Even if we die, God is still God. And our worship of this God isn't going to be shaped by our circumstances, but we're going to worship Him because of who He is. He is the creator of the universe. He created you. He created the materials that you use to make your idols. He is above everything. It would be stupid for us to renounce our allegiance to this God and bow down and worship a piece of metal. So it might sound strange, but suffering for God's people, whilst it has many purposes, one of the silver linings for the follower of Christ is that suffering doesn't just strengthen our faith, but it gives us an opportunity to declare to the world that even if I suffer, even if I'm persecuted, even if my body is given over to be burned, 
gives us an opportunity to show the world and reveal to them that our God is greater. Doesn't matter what my circumstances are, God is still God. He is still above everything. He is worthy of all worship, no matter what the Lord does to us. Second point, God walks with us in the fire. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he says something interesting. He says, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. And I shared earlier, I don't think we'll ever definitively know who this fourth individual was exactly on this side of eternity. Maybe when we go to heaven, we can ask him. It could have been an angel of the Lord, uh, but I, I kind of lean towards that as Jesus. Uh, but irrespective of who you believe this individual was, like I said, it represented the presence of God himself with his people. And what's amazing is that this is the pattern that we see throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and throughout the last 2,000 years of Christian history. This is the pattern that we've seen, that God is always with his people. Remember the context of today's passage. They're in exile. God's people have disobeyed him. They worshipped idols despite this covenant that God set up. Don't worship the other gods. They say no problems and they go and worship the other gods. King after king after king. Failing one after the other. Even King David. The glorious king of Israel. The ones that the Jews point and say, you know what, that guy was the it king. What does he do? Commits adultery. Lies. Tries to cover it up. Has her husband murdered? This was the best that humanity had to offer. And they fell into this never-ending cycle of disobedience despite what God commanded them. But the pattern that we see all the way from Genesis 1 is that God does not abandon his people. Even if you look at Adam and Eve, God told them, you will die if you eat of that tree. But God showed mercy. He didn't abandon them. God's people have constantly broken the covenant that He established. We, they've just constantly followed after idols, even us today. The idols might not look the way it did 2,000 years ago or tens of thousands of years ago, but we have idols in our life that we continuously bore after, despite all of God's warnings. But the pattern that God has demonstrated is this faithfulness to always be with his people. And going into exile, being just obliterated by Babylon, that was the culmination of God's punishment for their sins at the time. And yet despite their failing, we see in today's passage that God didn't forget his people and he didn't let them go. And like I said, Throughout human history, God has demonstrated grace by showing his desire to be with his people. Even if you look at other instances of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, as Israel comes out of Egypt, as liberated from slavery in Egypt, the tabernacle represented what? God's presence amongst his people. As they go through the wilderness and they're led by a pillar of fire and clouds, what did that represent? God's presence leading his people. And we see in today's 
passage. The fourth individual in the fire with them. God's presence with his people. And even as a people of the new covenant, we see it in our lives as well. We see it in the Christ. The great Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God's presence with his people. Now, the message of Daniel 3, and this is important, the message of Daniel 3 is not that God saves you from the fire. It's not. In fact, even Daniel's friends were actually open to the possibility that God wouldn't save them from the fire. They told the king, even if God doesn't save us, even if we die, he's still worthy to be worshipped. So they were open to the possibility of not being saved. So the message of Daniel 3 isn't that God saves us from the fire, but rather that God walks with us in the fire. Even in the context of our own lives, a lot of you guys are going through seasons of brokenness. Maybe like me, you came from a dysfunctional family. But by the authority of God's word, by the promise of the scriptures, we have this pledge from God, this promise from Him, that He walks with us through seasons like this. God walks with His people in the fire. Final point. Trusting in God means coming up and committing your life to Him. Nebuchadnezzar concludes in verse 28. Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. What a conclusion. That despite their disobedience, because of their defiant belief that they're going to worship their God only, the conclusion of chapter 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar praises their God. He praises their God because he understands his power, his ability to rescue them from what should have been a gruesome death. And he makes, for me, a startling observation about true saving faith. He says to Daniel's friends that they not only trusted God, trust is one thing, faith is one thing, but he says that they yielded up their bodies. They not only had faith, Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, these, these guys believed and trusted in God that had faith, but it wasn't just faith. But that faith was evidenced by their action. And I think that's something important that we need to remember when we come to this theme of come up. Because when it comes to the Christian faith, even that word faith, like, you know, coming up is more than just, okay, I'm just going to believe in you. But even that word faith, I can't help but think that in recent years, we've relegated what this word means. We've watered it down and kind of made it from a three-dimensional concept to a two- or one-dimensional one. Because there's two things, in my opinion, that we get wrong today about the Christian faith. The first is that when we think of faith, 
abandoned our understanding of faith and we equate it to just salvation. That the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of faith, is to take us off the road going to hell and put us on the road going to heaven. That's the limitations I think we, we tend to box faith in. But the gospel revealed through the scriptures shows us so much more than that. It promises so much more than that. Because faith is not just about trusting in God to have your sins forgiven. But trusting in God and working hand in hand with the Spirit of God, not just to be forgiven, but to be transformed. Like I mentioned earlier, the point of Daniel 3 isn't this romanticized, erroneous idea that God's going to somehow rescue us from the fire. It's not going to be sunshine for the rest of our lives just because we follow God. This idea that everything is going to be sunshine and rainbows, that's actually a delusion that's created by culture rather than scripture. Because the point of Daniel 3, like I said, wasn't that God saves us from the fire, but that God walks with us in the fire. And more often than not, our faith is tested and refined through the fires of adversity. The second thing is that sanctification, your transformation, your growth in your walk with God, we, we've made the mistake of assuming that this is all up to God. I serve at a Pentecostal church, I'll share that with you, but I still hold to Reformed theology. I'm still a Presbyterian at heart. Um, and one thing we believe as good, faithful Presbyterians is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God in salvation. That God is the author, the initiator, and the sustainer of our salvation. That if I've come to true saving faith, if I've placed, if I've repented, and I've placed my faith in God, that is because He performed the work of salvation in me. We believe that because the scriptures teach it. That if my heart is for God, it's not because I worked to make my heart for God. It's because He removed the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. That He, through the Spirit of God, according to John chapter 3, made me a born-again Christian. So yes, salvation is of the Lord. But the transformation, the sanctification process, is something that the scriptures teach us that we're to do hand-in-hand with the Spirit of God. If we are born again by the Holy Spirit, God empowers us. He gives us the means. He gives us the strength and the ability to begin growing in our walk with Him, growing in our trust of Him, growing in our pursuit of God, and ultimately growing in our pursuit of holiness and good works. Not so that we can have faith, but as a natural byproduct of faith. And I think that's something that Presbyterians, Calvinists have forgotten. God has called us to live holy lives, yet we're so satisfied with just being saved that we just want to camp there. We've divorced and relegated faith to be, you know, just get saved and that's it. And whilst it is true, believe and get saved, we've made the mistake of just leaving, leaving it at that. If we look at the Old Testament, Israel in the Exodus, if I, if I were to give you an analogy, if you read through the Exodus, God's people, Israel, 
They're under slavery in Egypt. They're under the oppression of the Egyptian empire. Yet God liberates them. He frees them. Just like he freed us from sin. And he brings them out with the promise of taking them to the promised land. He says, there is a destination I'm going to take you. Let's go there. But what happens to the people of God? They go into the wilderness. And they're there for like 40 years. And I think that's kind of how we are. God liberates us from sin. And there is a place that He wants us to move towards. There is a trajectory that He wants our life to move towards. But we're just so happy we're just pitching our tent. You know what? Just believe and get saved. That's all I want. But that's not the life that the gospel calls us to. We're not called to be saved and just remain idle. We're called once we're saved, if we are saved, by the power of God's Spirit. We're called to live lives that pursue holiness, good works, to pursue Him. Not as a means of salvation, but as the evidence of our salvation. I would go as far as to say that if you looked back at your Christian life, and you saw no evidence of spiritual growth, at all, no growth in your desire for God, no growth in your love for God's Word, no desire for prayer. I would go as far as to question whether you were born again. Because James makes a similar statement in verses two, or chapter 2 of his epistle, verses 14 to 17. And this, this is a verse that's often misinterpreted. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but doesn't have works, can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give him what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if he does not have works, faith is dead by itself. Now I say this is misinterpreted often, because James isn't saying that works is what gives you faith. James is saying to us, as we know according to the gospel of salvation, that salvation, you know, we know it's by faith alone. But what James is saying is that true saving faith is never alone. James is saying that true saving bad faith as a natural reaction of someone that's been born again by the Spirit of God, their life will give birth to good works. You will see a pursuit in holiness for someone that has fallen in love with Jesus. Someone that's been transformed by grace. And going back to today's passage, I think Nebuchadnezzar was able to see this in Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Because he comments on their trust and their faith in God. But he also comments on their action. It wasn't just talk for them. They yielded up their bodies to be burned. Trusting in God, coming up to God, is more than just a mere intellectual or a verbal exercise. It's not about just believing intellectually with your mind, but it's about committing your entire life to Him. We can't afford to be passive when it comes to our faith. We're not called to be tame and timid when it comes to our faith. 
Because if the gospel is as transformational as it claims to be, the same spirit of God that brought the universe into existence is the same spirit that saves us. This is not a timid spirit of God. Our God is not a timid God, but if He dwells in us, within us and around us, our lives for God should be wild and passionate. When we come to a retreat like this and we sing praises to celebrate God on the Sabbath, we should be taking the roof off this place because of who He is and what He has done for us. And if we align our trajectory, our walk with God in this way as we come up to God and commit our lives to Him, we'll see that even in the midst of this adversity, we'll be able to celebrate because not only has God saved us, not only are we transformed and growing, but even if we go through a difficult season of life, we can still celebrate, even if it hurts, because it does, that God's walking with us in the fire. And as we experience this from day to day, day to day, if you continuously come up, continuously embrace and ask God to transform you, and discipline yourself, regiment your life to be a person that follows after him because of what he has done for you. You'll find that your relationship with God will just go to another level. The way you see God will be transformed. It'll almost feel like I want to give an analogy. Uh, I'm not so old that black and white, or TV wasn't black and white, I'm not that old. But I did see a video of when in Australia black and white television got converted to colour. And that's what it'll feel like. When you start being serious about your saving faith and moving towards this trajectory of ongoing sanctification, ongoing transformation because the Spirit of God has empowered you, it'll be like your relationship with God is transforming from black and white into colour. So when you do experience trials and adversities, even when you're at your weakest, even when it feels like there's no hope, you will actually look to God and He will look much bigger. You will understand more of His sovereignty, not just as a theological concept, but as a reality, a tangible reality in your own life. And you will not just see His strength, His power, His Lordship over creation, but you'll see how tender His love his mercy and His compassion is for you. The love in Scripture is not an abstract concept. It is a love for you. It is mercy and compassion for you. And so for those who are going through a broken season of life, remember that Christ has tasted, He has intentionally participated and shared in our suffering and He continues to walk with us in the fire. And our role, if we are saved, if we have received the Spirit of God, is to come up to the throne of God, not with a timid spirit, but with a wild spirit of confidence and boldness. And to grow, not just believe, but to grow, trusting and committing our lives to Him as we pursue holiness and good works, not as a means to get saved, not so that God will somehow do something extra for us, but because of what He's already done for us. So those are the three points. Number one, suffering is an opportunity for you to reveal God to the world. Number two, 
God walks with us in the fire. And number three, trusting in God means committing your life to Him. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, we, we, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that you don't over-romanticize what life is like. You don't make life seem like it's going to be easier than what it is. But what we have in the scriptures is a clear, vivid description of the reality of what sin has done in destroying this world and bringing brokenness into humanity. And we thank you, Lord, through the scriptures that you reveal to us that we don't have to be satisfied with brokenness because you've given us a means and a way out through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that through his gospel of salvation that you give us healing and restoration, not only with you, but with each other. And that for those who place their trust and their faith, if they come to repentance in Him and receive the Spirit of God to be born again. Father, help us to understand that You've not called us to remain idle. Not called us to be tame when it comes to following You. But to be wild and passionate about our faith and about You. And so, Lord... Some of us have been living lives prior to this retreat, just pitching their tent and being satisfied where they are. But Lord, we pray that idleness and tent pitching would not be something that would ever be a defining element of our faith, but that we would be a people that as you desire, would press on to look more like Christ, to live like Christ, to be all about his glory. And to embrace that first catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and not just glorify Him but to enjoy Him forever. I pray that this would become a tangible reality in all of us, Lord. 